Hello, and welcome to our last episode in Season 1 of the One Minute Preceptor podcast. I'm your host, Chase DeMarco, and I wanted to say thank you for sticking with us through this first season. We've had some really great interviews, received a lot of valuable insights from the different preceptors and educators that we've interviewed so far. We already have Season 2 planned and are going to take a slightly different approach to Season 2. We're going to get more about faculty development and education as a whole, still with a concentration on clinical medicine, but in a broader sense, with more varied interpretations of the future of medicine and where we're going and how to get there and what we should be doing right now. So I want to thank each and every one of you for listening to this show. And unfortunately, this episode, apparently my mic was not working properly. It recorded on the computer mic instead. So I do apologize for the sound quality issues on my end, but you can still hear the guest very well. And there's a lot of valuable information here. So I do hope you enjoy and subscribe so you will know when season two comes out. Welcome to the One Minute Preceptor Podcast, your resource for clinical rotation advice and tips to prepare for your externships in healthcare. Learn how to earn letters of recommendation, prepare for your clerkship, and excel at patient care from preceptors with years of practice. We interview physician educators in every specialty and clinical setting to discuss how to prepare for your rotation and improve your clinical experience. Here's your host and MedEd entrepreneur, Chase DeMarco. Dr. Ryan Newholfel is a family physician based out of Lawrence, Kansas. He is also the past president of the Direct Primary Care Alliance, which advocates for stronger community and physician-led mentorship through DPC Medicine. Ryan, how are you doing today? I'm doing great, Chase. Thanks for having me. I'm glad we can finally schedule some time here and talk a little bit more about DPC and about how clinical medicine in you know your community really works. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I'm happy to share my experience both in becoming a, a family medicine physician and then the practice model and movement known as direct primary care. There's so many different facets of that journey and story. So I'm, I'm happy to share any of that with you guys. Now we've spoken about direct primary care a little bit in a past episode or two, but you know, as the past president of the DPC Alliance, maybe you can shed a little bit more light on you know what it actually is and how it differs from the normal model of primary care. Yeah, I think I think uh, you can look at this one of two ways. You can look at the technical nature of what is the DPC model, and then you can look at the history of it, and that's interwoven. So just from a very technical, basic standpoint, direct primary care is defined now, widely practiced, as a direct relationship between a patient and a primary care physician. They do that outside of the traditional insurance fee-for-service billing system. Typically, it's arranged under a monthly membership fee. And for that monthly membership fee, the primary care doctor provides that patient a whole host of primary care services. So instead of you know dealing with insurance for these type of ongoing primary care needs, they just do it outside of that system. And that's probably the most technical, easy, easy to wrap your head around. If I'm talking to a layperson, I usually say it's like Costco for primary care or like joining a gym for your primary care services. And that, that runs the gamut in terms of care. So primary care, as it's widely understood, would be prevention or wellness, you know, keeping people well things like screening tests, early detection, acute illness, you know, when people get sick or injured, we take care of them, and then chronic disease management. So we try to try to bundle that all together and care for people in a way that makes much more sense, I think, than what the traditional system does for primary care. Got it. Yeah, the history of it is long and complex and depends on who you ask. So the the earliest route, uh, the DPC, uh, what we call now DPC, probably start in the late 90s or early 2000s 
which is maybe a handful at most of doctors kind of opting outside of the insurance system and creating these type of subscription models directly with their patients. But really, when I started thinking about this and first read about it, it was in the late 2000s as I was finishing medical school and then graduated there in 2008. I mean, there was literally a handful of doctors around the country doing something like this. And there'd been a few mentions of, quote, direct primary care in the media and a couple policies. But for the most part, it was non-existent up through 2008, 2009. And then at about that time, I started residency and, you know, getting through that is, is hard enough. So I, I wasn't too worried about exactly what I was going to be doing. But as I went through residency, realizing that, you know, I wasn't going to be happy in traditional practices, I experienced all the traditional settings that, that, a, that a family medicine doctor and training would experience, you know, from basic private practice in a community to academics, to safety net clinics, rural medicine. But I thought that all of them just weren't going to fulfill the vision of what I saw myself wanting to be as a family doctor. And so, you know, about that time I said, okay, I got I got to do something different. I, I, I did go through these years of training and all of this hassle and debt to have a miserable career. And so that's 2010, 2011. I started my practice straight out of residency in 2011. And at that time there was you know, a dozen or so doctors probably doing something like this. And then from there, it just kind of the movement kind of slowly grew organically for three, four, five years. Um, you know, by 2013, 2014, there may have been 100 or 200 of us by most accounts, but we all were independent doing our own thing. Um, we started using the phrase mostly on our own just to help other people understand what we were doing. And then about 2014, there was some, some great you know, national media, a few conferences around that time that really kind of, you know, really ignited the DPC movement, I think, as people understand it now. And so for the last, you know, five or six years, it's, it's, it's grown leaps and bounds. Now there's over a thousand DPC practices nationwide, which is still not a huge percentage of the family medicine or primary care community, but it's, it's grown tremendously since those early days. Wow, that's a great summation there. And I find it interesting, especially as this might be one of the last interviews for season one of this show. So I wanted to go a little bit more into some of the specialties and, and differences in DPC, more so than I normally would focus on some of the past specialties I've interviewed. And one thing that I find endlessly curious is how some of the subspecialties within medicine seem to be trying to get their foot in the door as well. For instance, when I finished my DPC rotation a couple of years ago in Colorado by uh, Dr. Davidson, there was also a cardiologist joining in and there were some other non-primary care type of specialties that seem to be trying to follow this type of model. Yeah. How is that working out? I think that the, the American healthcare system is broken so many different ways. That's not just unique to primary care. And so, I mean, DPC by definition is primary care. The PC means something to me. And so I think uh, primary care has been particularly harmed and devalued by our current healthcare system in many different ways. And so my, my main focus from the beginning has been, you know, creating this business model and movement that empowers and restores uh, the value of primary care through entrepreneurship, through regaining autonomy, to providing better primary care for true primary care to our patients. And so um, for me, this, is, this has been very much like a primary care driven thing, but recognizing that there's definitely other challenges for other specialties, whether that's you know, a very narrow subspecialist or someone who has kind of a, a niche thing that they do. And so, yeah, there's, there's other people in the direct space. You know? So we, we use the phrase direct primary care. And now because of some laws and just some branding, we generally mean primary care under a subscription model. But yeah, there's definitely direct models of care. So if you want to speak more broadly about the direct model, 
there's definitely other specialists who can do that. Some of them do it in a fee-for-service basis because it might not make sense for uh, an orthopedic surgeon, for example, to do a subscription. So, so it could be on a direct pay basis, but not on a subscription. And that, you know, that, that's going to be up to each individual doctor. But as a proportion, I think the specialists are pretty small compared to the number of primary care doctors. But I think it's awesome, you know, the number of people going into the direct pay space. And some of them are kind of doing it, you know, on a, on a very part-time basis. They may run a traditional practice, but say, I'm going to offer this direct pay option to my patients who have high deductibles or who are uninsured. Others of them will go completely on direct pay. And that's very, very hard, I think. I, I haven't seen very many specialists be 100% direct pay like I have in in primary care, but it's it's definitely possible. And I think it's really exciting and good for the direct primary care movement because ultimately there is an end to what I do. I think DPC allows me to be a doctor who can take care of people uh, more thoroughly for more issues, but there is, there is an end to what I do. And so whenever that happens, I get this question all the time from prospective patients as well. What if I need a cardiologist? What if I need a hospital? What if I need this or that? And that's going to depend on the patient and their situation and whether they have insurance. But it's really great to have other direct pay options. You know, we have most specialists are available in some capacity in the Kansas City area on a direct pay basis. Some of that's like published public pricing, other of this kind of secret private pay pricing that our patients or we know about. And so those resources are really valuable. And I think it's super helpful for the DPC movement for more specialists and ancillary type providers to, to be in on this. And it's interesting because private care in general, especially if you're in your own clinic, requires a lot more business sense, a lot more negotiating, a lot more figuring things out, uh, whether that be social media and marketing and just business ownership in general. And it seems like it's even more required or different skills need to be added on if you're in a DPC type environment, because you have to form these networks with imaging, with laboratory testing to provide more benefit for your audience, for your patients. That's true in some respects. I, I think it's true that it's a different skill set. But in another, in another sense, I, I've always only half joking said the reason I'm doing DPC is because I wasn't smart enough to figure out how to play the game that all other doctors play. And so that, that's totally true. I, I, remember, I remember when I was in residency, and I, I always wanted to be kind of independent private practice owner, entrepreneur, but I didn't initially think like, oh, I'm just going to say screw all the insurance stuff. I, I said, okay, you know, I'll figure it out. You know, I'll figure out what a 99213 with a 25 modifier is because that's the game played. So I can remember like reading practice management journals, you know, like the family practice management journals and just thinking, oh my God, this is so complex. Like, why don't we just say it's $50? Like it, that would be so much easier. So I don't know. I mean, so people from the outside think DPC is really hard, but I don't think it's any harder than playing that game. And I don't think it's any scarier. I have lots of colleagues who own traditional private practices, uh, primary care practices, and they, they deal with an enormous amount of stress and worry and complexity to their business. It's different. You know, I mean, it's different because they're they're more worried about like the insurance negotiations. I don't think they have to be quite as proactive in getting patients because if they're insurance plan, the patients find them because it's part of the plan. So we definitely have to be more entrepreneurial in a sense. We have to be more public. You know, we have to put ourselves out there. We have to be more of a salesperson, which makes some people feel uncomfortable. But I, I don't think that's all that's unique to DPC. So I, I tell people, if you're smart enough to get through medical school, like you're smart enough to be a small business owner. I mean, it's not, it's truly not rocket science. You don't need an MBA. In fact, the vast majority of DPC doctors I know don't have business training or backgrounds or anything like that. Huh, got it. Okay. That's interesting point of view from some of the others that I've heard from other DPC physicians, but also obviously from people not really that familiar with it and, and trying to work out the differences and similarities yeah. and can be quite intense. 
Yeah, it is. It, it is a, it's a steep learning curve. I mean, all of medicine is all, becoming a doctor is becoming as a, you know, whatever specialty chooses a steep learning curve. So I, I won't say it's like easy. It's not like you just roll over and just have a practice. I mean, you got to work your butt off. There's a ton to learn. But again, you're comparing that to the traditional complex healthcare system. Now, if, if you're, if you're talking about like, is it easier just to be like an employee of a hospital in terms of learning new stuff? Of course. I mean, you, you can just get employed and you, you check whatever boxes they say and you, you know, you jump through those hoops may not be happy doing that. But yeah, if you're an employed doctor and you have a salary and you're not worried about doing anything other than just showing up to work and seeing your 27 patients a day. Yeah. That, that's, that's probably an easier path in terms of learning. But if you want to, if you want to be an independent doctor and you want to you know, run a successful practice in a business, DPC is very doable, not easy, but doable. I like it. All right. Now that we've really gone into the nitty gritty of what DPC is in particular, the next season of this show is actually planned to go into a little bit more about faculty development and, and clinical and academic medicine for preceptors or potential future preceptors. So I'm curious to know from your point of view, what you've seen with yourself and with others in the community, uh, whether that be a DPC Alliance or other primary care that don't necessarily have like the hospital and academic uh, medicine resources. How do you keep up to date on teaching practices or uh, how do you approach clinical medicine? I, I mean, I think the, the simplest answer to that is I have more time. I have learned so much in my practice because I'm not seeing 27 patients a day. I, I spend much more time with each patient, which is great for the patient, but I also usually have more time in between patients. You know, I can spend 20 or 30 minutes uh, after seeing a patient learning more about a topic that I don't understand or refreshing myself. And, and that's only possible because I have enough, quote, downtime, which I don't consider it downtime if I'm, if I'm working on behalf of my patient and learning. So I think, I think that that is by far the most important thing. I mean, if, if I worked at a big, glorious academic institution and I was churning out 20, 30 patients a day and, and writing notes at night, like, I mean, it's nice. I mean, I, 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 maybe you can learn by osmosis just by being around uh, super subspecialties and, and big glass buildings. But to me, like sitting down with a good resource, like up to date practice can take so many different forms. So, I mean, I have a handful of resources I learn and then learning from each other. I think one of the huge drawbacks of, of our modern system is doctors don't have enough time to talk to each other. So I, I have friends who practice with other doctors, but they're all so busy and scurrying around that they don't get to like curbside each other and say, hey, you know, I have this patient. What do you think about this? And we learn from each other. So yeah, there's textbooks, but I also think there's that, you know, that self-directed learning that it should happen throughout the continuum of our career. Uh, I mean, I hope I'm smarter now than I was five years ago. I hope in five more years, I've learned a lot more. So that learning never ends, especially for primary care. And, and the only way I think that's possible is to have the time to do it, really. I suppose that's a great point. If you're in the typical teens and 20s and sometimes 30s of patients a day, it definitely doesn't leave a whole lot of time for self-reflection, for self-education, for just keeping up to date with everything else going on in your field and in your specialty, let alone the educational yeah. material that is coming out for your medical students or, or residents or whoever else yeah. is under you. Yeah. And so I tend to practice a very slow or conservative brand of medicine. I'm very slow to order tests. I'm very slow to order medications. I try to limit intervention. So I, I, I kind of have a skeptical or slow approach to medicine, but you can just go in so much more depth with a topic, right? Like if you're doing a workup on a patient who has elevated liver enzymes, I mean, I think most primary care doctors know the first two or three steps to that. And if they can't figure it out, it's like, oh my gosh, this gets so complex and overwhelming. And I'd have to read for an hour to understand. So I'm just going to refer them to a GI doctor or a liver specialist. 
it's not that I, I can always do that without consulting. You know, I, I can't do everything without a consultant, but I would say I'm much more able to, to dive deep on complex problems or complex patients. If a patient has three or four chronic conditions and they're difficult to manage, I can't do that in 15 or 20 minute visits. It's just impossible. I, mean, I, might, I might need 45 minutes or an hour with some of these patients. And so I think what happens in the normal system is although we have all these patients who have these diagnoses, we're kind of superficially caring for them and, and, and triaging them to specialists. And then we're kind of, you know, not even really serving much as a quarterback because we get, you know, terrible documentation and terrible communication with our specialists. So it's just when you have that time, if you can remember residents, uh, all doctors will tell you this, they remember how glorious, like in some respects, I know this is crazy, but in family medicine, they, they talk about how glorious their intern and second year was in clinic because they were, they were only forced to see, you know, four or six patients per half a day. And then as you get towards the your end of your residency, they expect you to be a real doctor and see a dozen half and a half a day. And I, I can remember that, like thinking, man, my first and second year, I thought I was learning a ton. I, I really thought I could ask questions. I had, you know, more close supervision, but I felt like, man, I'm learning a ton. I'm, I'm like becoming a smart doctor. And by the time I get to my third year, they're like, okay, you need to do the normal volume and normal pace because otherwise you can't make it in the real world. I thought I'm an idiot. Like all I can do is refill. All, all I can do is make a referral. All I can do is order a test. But I would love to sit down and like think through this patient and what to do, but I don't have time. So I mean, the path of least resistance is like to push the patient onto somebody else. And I think that happens a lot and it's it's really bad for our education. So it seems like for residents, they obviously need to be in some sort of hospital and academic medicine type of scenario for all the different requirements that they're going to see. And because that's how residency works, you have to be, what is it, accredited for a residency program? Yeah, for sure. For sure. But for medical students that are really still trying to make that transition from the basic sciences, from the lecture halls into medicine, do you feel like primary care in general or specifically DPC clinics would be a great experience for them? Absolutely. I have uh, medical students with me most months. It's, it's eye-opening really because transitioning from biology and pathophysiology to clinical medicine is hard in itself. Doesn't matter what business model you're in. Doesn't matter what practice setting. That's just like it's a really hard thing because you know those those nice easy physiology charts that you learned aren't always applicable or not easily applicable. So you you need that foundation of knowledge to understand anything in a clinical context. But there's so much clinically that you don't obviously cover in the first two years, and there's lots of words and verbiage, and it's just overwhelming. It's like I remember as a third year student, it was like stepping into a foreign country where I didn't speak the language and. And so that's, that's hard in itself. But I think even, even bigger than that is like understanding the context of the patient and the patient's story. And I think that gets lost in the shuffle a lot. You know, we get wrapped up in like learning, you know, the 17 SSRIs or, you know, some newest, latest, greatest drug and, and, and all that, all that's kind of important. But I think what's much more important is for, for students and doctors to understand like the whole picture of a patient, like their experience in going through the healthcare system. You know, one thing I always talk to students about is healthcare costs. What is the patient paying? And that's so rare for students to even hear that type of perspective because doctors like to think they're above it, right? Well, uh, you have insurance or whatever, and you have this card, and I, I'd say this medicine best, but they have no idea what the MRI will cost or what that consultant will cost. Or And so we're kind of like, I, I remember as a student, I was, I don't know if I was outright told this, but kind of implied that like, don't worry about that stuff, that you're, that's beneath you, you know, that you're a doctor, you make medical decisions, so you shouldn't worry about money. You know, we're above money. And, and the truth is that's not real. That, I mean, patients' lives 
that that stuff factors in. So even even talking to students about like, hey, there's several different ways we could approach this, and here's how much each of them costs, and talking about that openly with students and with the patient, I mean, I think is hugely important right now in American healthcare. So yeah, there's just so many different facets to it, and I think DBC is one of the few places you'll actually kind of understand the healthcare system and how how terrible it is and and how it you know mistreats patients and it's wasteful and I could go on and on and on. The wastefulness aspect is something I hear about a lot. And as you said, we don't really know the prices of these tests, of these medications. So it's, it is quite interesting how such a large and convoluted type of system can expand and continue to dominate when it, it lacks such basic transparencies that you see in any other business profession these days. Yeah. Yeah. And I think there's, that's for many reasons. Obviously, there's big historical and policy reasons for that. But I think it's also kind of a cultural problem. You know, I think a lot of doctors just feel uncomfortable talking about money. And it, and it kind of is, in some respects for them, it's easier to pretend that it doesn't exist. For patients, that's not true. I mean, patients are suffering tremendously. I mean, the studies on this are just flabbergasting the number of people who avoid medical care for fear of costs. And sometimes that's legitimate fear. And sometimes it's just because they don't know. I mean, the fear of the unknown drives that as much as anything, you know. And, and that's not to say there's not some people who can't afford stuff. But I have patients every day say, you know, for 10 years, I didn't manage my diabetes because one time a doctor ordered a test and I got billed $2,000. So for 10 years, I've just done nothing. And I'm like, well, golly gee, you know, first of all, now, now, you're, now you're much worse off. Now you have kidney disease and nerve damage and, and we might be able to help you. But they basically put off stuff that was relatively affordable things uh, to care for diabetes because of, you know, a single bad incident. And I don't blame them. You know, I mean, if, if, like you said, if you compared that to any other industry, if I went into the grocery store and I was buying groceries and there wasn't sticker prices on anything and they were like, well, just put whatever you think you might need in your cart and then you'll check out and then we'll send you a bill later. I would be afraid to go to the grocery store. And so I know that's not always possible. You know, I know that when I say this, people are like, oh my God, well, what about when you get run over by a bus? That's the 1%. In primary care and most outpatient care, increasingly that's chronic disease management. It's very, very possible to tell people up front what something costs. It's not that complex. And I like that comparison. I find I do the same thing. If I go to a grocery store and something's not labeled, I'm not going to buy that item because I don't want a surprise. Yeah. <laughs> I've, I've, a, few t- a, few times, a few times I've been in a very fancy restaurant and very few, I can count them on the number of hands where they didn't have prices on the menu. Luckily, every time I've been there, someone else was paying. Otherwise, I probably wouldn't have been there. And I felt uncomfortable the entire meal. I didn't know what to order and someone else was paying. And I still felt like this is not right. Like I wanted to order the steak, but I'm like, is it $87? Is it 17? I don't know. So um, yeah, I can only imagine with medical care where you know it can be hundreds or thousands of dollars. It might be $2, but people just have no context of what stuff could or should cost. I mean, it's, it's I have so many stories where people like believed that something uh, just inherently had to cost $2,000 because they've heard of a story where that's real, that did happen. But I'm like, no, you know, I mean, an MRI... You know, if you strip out all the red tape, you strip out all the bureaucracy, um, you can easily find one for two to four hundred dollars. Like I know several places where you can get one for that much. And the same person, though, you know, five years before that, maybe they had insurance even, and they went, they ended up at some hospital because some doctor didn't know any better, and they spent two thousand dollars for an MRI of their knee. And so for five years, they they maybe need another one, but they just didn't even consider possible. And then, you know, I I, I mean, I have so many stories like that where people, um, or they were paying. A hundred dollars a month for medicine, when they could have used like a cash coupon program to make it ten dollars. Like, and for years they were paying a hundred dollars, and they had no idea that that almost never happens in another industry. Like, I've never heard of a grocery store for years charging people twenty dollars for a gallon of milk 
when every other grocery store in town was only charging three or four. Like that just doesn't happen because people are aware of it and they think about it and we kind of have an idea of what it is. But in healthcare, it's just pricing and cost is just such this, well, I don't know, we'll, you know, bill me and we'll figure it all out later. I had that exact same thing happen with an MRI where it was uh, $2,000. I said, no insurance, cash payment dropped down to about 500, I think it was. So that initial cost is what the patient's going to see. And that initial cost is what's going to scare them and stick in their mind. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I've even seen, I mean, I've even seen insurance plans. I mean, I've seen people with insurance who have a high deductible pay close to $2,000 for an MRI to hospital. I mean, so yeah, there's the charge master rate, which is a whole other level of strange deception. But the, even the rates that like an insurance plan may negotiate could be way, way higher than what you could get it just paying cash. And, and if people don't know that, you know, they just say, oh, well, this is part of my plan. I want to go with my plan because it's the plan. And, and so they just don't know any better and they're in the dark. It's, it's really frustrating and sad. Do you ever run into an issue in DPC or uh, similar types of offshoots, I guess, like the non-primary care ones in particular come to mind for this, where they don't accept insurance. So that means they don't accept Medicare, Medicaid as well. And then some patients are just kind of stuck. They're not able to afford the monthly fees, or maybe that clinic doesn't have one or something along those lines where the patients might still fall between the cracks. Yeah. I mean, there's no, there's no system, there's no clinic, there's no model that I know of that doesn't operate on money. I mean, at a fundamental level. So yes, I mean, there's people in America who cannot afford $1 for care. Uh, I think we all recognize that. So for me, yes, I, I recognize that some people can't afford anything. And that's true of private, I mean, traditional private practices, you know, just because people accept insurance doesn't mean everything's affordable. So just initially, my, my reaction to that is, well, that's, that's true of anywhere, uh, not just DPC. That's not like unique to DPC where people with no money can't afford care. And so I think we're able to serve people in a transparent way, but it's not usually free. We do, each of us have, I think, have more freedom and flexibility to accommodate people. We can offer them scholarships, uh, hardship credits, reduced rates. Each of us do that in our own way. I, I do that frequently for my patients. I tend to think people value things they pay for. So I, I rarely will just say, you never have to pay us. I mean, I, I've done that on occasion. But if people are patients of ours and they, they come across hard times, I say, you know what, let's just give you a hardship credit. Don't worry about our fees for the next three months. Uh, when you get back on your feet, you can start paying us again. And most people, that's a great arrangement. And I think we're actually more flexible and capable of doing that because we're not worried about violating insurance laws and contracts. And so a lot of doctors who bill insurance plans, especially Medicare, have to be very, very careful about giving, quote, discounts or waiving balances and all that type of stuff. So yeah, I mean, my patient population, for perspective here, is is really close to a safety net. There's a lot of confusion with DPC and concierge still, unfortunately, amongst a lot of people. And so I've, I've often joked that I run a concierge safety net clinic because my, my patient population is about 50 to 60% uninsured. Almost all those people are, are lower middle income or lower, a ton of like working self-employed people who just cannot afford health insurance. Some of them uh, do have health plans, but they usually have a super high deductible. So if you have a $6,000 deductible and you have a chronic disease, um, you're paying out of pocket for almost everything that's important. So I would say functionally, the vast majority of my patients don't feel like they have coverage or affordable care. So yeah, I, I recognize that there's there's truly poor people. I, there's tons of ideas we could do. There's tons of things we could do, ideas that would allow uh, you know lower income patients to be, I think, better assisted than they are now, than what like Medicaid does right now. My, my proposal would be to give to give them a uh, something akin to like a debit card, uh, like an HSA or a system where we could give them a subsidy, you know, a cash subsidy to allow them to choose a DPC or similar type primary care practice. 
and cut just cut the insurance out of it and let them manage that. We do that with food assistance, for example. For the most part, I think we've learned that uh, giving people cash benefit to buy food if they're low income is a much more effective and equitable way to do that than a soup kitchen or mailing them cheese in the mail. So yeah, I mean, there's things we could do from a policy perspective. I, I, I'm not in charge of Medicaid or Medicare, but I think, I think most DPC doctors are serving a lot of people who have fallen through the cracks. So I suppose I just don't accept the premise that we're somehow not doing uh, that or we're not caring for people who aren't struggling. I do think that flexibility is extremely important and yeah, not having your hands tied by all of the insurance regulations, which can be a minefield to try to navigate. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I know practices who straight up tell uninsured patients, we just won't see you, period. Like if you, if you call and you, and you say you're insured, they say, we just won't schedule you. So it's funny. Like, I mean, that's, that's, I, I don't want to say that's the majority of practices in America, but it's, it's pretty darn common. And, and for whatever reason, no one, no one squawks about that. Like no, no one says, oh, okay, well, you don't have a plan, then you can't be seen here. I, I very rarely hear. So it's, that's like the other side of the coin, right? So 50% of my patients or so are uninsured. And there's a huge number of practices that I could not refer them. Like they just wouldn't schedule them. And uh, yeah, it's, just, it's an interesting thing. Yeah, it definitely is. I guess if you got the golden ticket, which usually doesn't exist, if you got the golden ticket in your pocket, everything's great. Exactly. But very few people have a golden ticket. What are some recommendations or some advice that you would suggest for students looking to start a DPC rotation? Yeah, I think I think the easiest, the best way is to look at DPC Alliance. Um, we have a past president there for the last uh, two years up until January when I was president there. And we have 300 plus members, uh, most of them with active DPC practices. So I think looking there as a resource, we do allow students to join as members, no charge for students. So joining the Alliance, we have a mentorship program. Um, we can connect you with a local DPC doctor. And I think that's the best way to experience it. It's great to listen to, to interviews and podcasts like this. Um, there's tons of DPC resources out there. There's conferences, uh, the DPC Summit, several others. And and those are all great. But I think, I think where it's really, really powerful is just to go to a DPC practice and see what it means to that doctor and what it means to those patients. I didn't realize that there were so many Availabilities for like no charge for students and the mentorship programs through the DPCA also. So that's a, a great thing. And I'll add some yeah. links in the show notes for those. Yeah, for sure. Yep. Yeah. You can go on the website there and look it up. We have a directory. That's not all DPC practices nationwide, but I think it's it's probably about a third of them or so. So there's that. There's some other directories out there. But yeah, the alliance is still in its infancy, but we're we're trying to create a more formal system and resources for students. So we launched something called DPC University uh, late last year, which is a effectively a knowledge-based in the community for DPC doctors and students and residents can, can partake in that as well. So we have articles on there that you can read, you have forums. Um, and so, yeah, there's a lot of different resources like that. But I think I think seeing it in real, real life is, is definitely the best way to, to get your feet wet. I know for primary care and family medicine, it can be very difficult to recommend any sort of study aids or those types of student guides, because it's such a broad topic. You never know what you're going to come across. You can really tackle anything. But are there any any websites or books or anything that you would recommend to your students? Man, I, I am so old at this point. I think whatever I knew 10 or 15 years ago is probably obsolete. I'm sold to remember then when we mostly carried around these paper book things, which I know probably pe- people don't do anymore. So I had a handful of things I used 10 or 15 years ago when I studied, but you know, by the time I was a resident, I, I used like more clinical resource stuff. I, I, I'm not the person to give advice on how to like study for boards, <laughs> to, to put it lightly. Yeah, that seems to be a, 
common thing I hear. It's just there's too much information. It's changing too quickly. And it's really difficult to to keep up with the the materials yeah. out there. But I suppose the American Family Medicine boards and specialty boards are probably yeah. a great place for different links and resources. Yeah. I know they all offer different ones depending on which specialty board. Yeah. And I, I think for students, it's finding good clinical experiences. In order to be a good doctor, you have to have good clinical experiences. So you can learn a ton in textbooks. You need to know that you have to have that foundation of knowledge. But in order to become a good doctor, it's, it's rotating with people who you respect and you you understand and who can explain things to you. And so, yeah, I think that's in the long run, that's that's much more important than which study guide you use. Like that, It's all the same information. The textbooks usually contain the same stuff. What about a student that's struggling with their clinical diagnosis, their physical exam, anything that you would really notice in the clinic? How would you approach that? What recommendations or advice would you give them? Yeah, I, I have students all the time. Most of them are third years, some of them are fourth years. And that's that's challenging. I mean, I know even into residency, it, it's a struggle to, to formulate your differential diagnosis. You know, it's just such an overwhelming amount of possibilities and so many different things and so many different words. It's hard to recall off the top of your head. So I think students, obviously, at some point in their, in their education, and hopefully by the time they're early in residency, you know, get pretty good at formulating differential diagnosis and, and treatment recommendations and that type of stuff. But, but I think, you know, most third-year students, it's, it's about being present in their rotations. I know that that's really hard in some clinical settings where it's so rushed. But every little thing that you see a doctor do, if you can, if you can ask them, you know, why did we do that? And I, I didn't probably do that as well as I should have. But as much as you can, you know, pick the doctor's brain about like, well, why do you think it was that? And what are the other possibilities? Because doctors, doctors, especially really busy ones, we don't talk out loud. And I tell my patients this all the time. Like a patient comes in and says, uh, I had this symptom, that symptom, and the other. I, I ask them a handful of questions. I might examine them real briefly. And in my head, like I'm going from a list of 20 things, maybe down to three, most likely. Uh, sometimes I'm like really confident about one of them. And, but I'm not, I mean, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying my 20 differential and narrowing it down in, in the room. That may be overwhelming and scary, <laughs> frankly, for the patient. And so a, a lot of times doctors are thinking and churning through a differential diagnosis or problem solving or considering different treatments, but we don't say that out loud. And so I think for students, like recognizing that there's a lot of thought going on there and don't just like at the end of it, if a doctor says, uh, I think this is X diagnosis, you say, oh, okay, when patients like say these things, it means they have X. Now, how did you think through that? Like, were there other possibilities? What was, you know, ask them what else was in a differential diagnosis? How do you parse out? Is it X, Y, or Z? And so I think a lot of times it's because it's so rushed, you, students are just like watching without really thinking how the doctor came to that decision. So when you get that opportunity, if you have a, you know, a good preceptor, that, that type of thing should be possible. That's great advice. Definitely trying to get the preceptor to speak out loud and understand their thought process can be very beneficial. And like you said, sometimes it's just difficult yeah. with the environment you're in, with the time constraints, with yeah. privacy laws yeah. and other things. But uh, if you can think of the proper way to ask the question and be concise about it, you're more likely to yeah. answer it as well. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's, I mean, circling back to DPC, it's funny, I have so many students who tell me, oh my gosh, you know, you have talked more about your patients, although they're much fewer than I've heard the rest of all my rotations combined. And so it's, it's sad because I think that doctors suffer when, they, when they're rushed and, and they don't have time to talk to their patients, but students also suffer, you know, if, if they're being used as scribes, if they're not able to talk to the doctor, I mean, how can you learn? And so it's, it's really sad that I think that does happen to a lot of students. And you have to be proactive and sometimes a little bit forceful 
but but I think it's possible. But it is sad if you're with uh, you know as a student trying to learn and and you're just seeing a doctor scurry around. It's it's really hard to learn much. So I usually start off with this question, but I wanted to get into DPC, so I decided to leave it to the end here. Uh, what is the funniest or the scariest thing you've ever seen in the clinical setting? Oh man, I have so many stories from my practice. I think the scariest thing for for doctors, and this is not unique to DPC, but I I think it's I think it's probably more true in DPC. Um, uh, I could think of a, specific scenarios, but I have a lot of patients who who probably should end up in a hospital or an ER, but for us, like we're really desperately trying to keep them out. And there's so many gray areas about like, is this an emergency? Is this not? Does this person need admitted to the hospital? Does this not? And sometimes it's a judgment call. So for me, those those are always, you know, just clinically speaking, those are always the scariest scenarios. And and we, we make such high expectations of ourselves and make such big promises to our patients that we can keep them out of the hospital, that we can spend more time with them. And so, I mean, I have I have so many so many stories like that. Uh, one early in my my practice was was uh, caring for a kid who was post ictal who had just had a seizure, and and the, the parents were uninsured. Called me. The kid was four or five. Was having a fever. Was sick and uh, had a seizure. You know, and those those are uh, obviously very very scary for the parents, but they also didn't want to bring him to the emergency room because he you know had a brief seizure and kind of came to and. And so they brought him to my clinic <laughs> and without going to the ER. And, and generally speaking, like most doctors would touch the kid with a 10 foot pole if he just had his first seizure. But, you know, the parents were pretty, pretty rational and, and, and calm and said, you know, took the story and, and yeah, it sounded like he had a febrile seizure and, you know, we, we could do some stuff there in the clinic to make sure it wasn't something else and watch him. And so, you know, we watched the kid for six, eight hours, like all day long, basically, like we were just like an emergency room in my clinic. And so, you know, those types of scenarios where we're, we're like, not functioning as a hospital or emergency room, but I think in, in DPC, sometimes we do that type of thing. Where in a, in a normal primary care setting, you know, they would just turf that to the ER and the hospital and let them sort it out. So, but I, I love that too. I mean, I say it's scary, but I'm also, I'm also somebody who likes doing those things. So I, I push those boundaries clinically more than I think, I think I could otherwise. But for me, that's scary, but also fun. It is a little scary. It sounds scary and knowing where your limitations are and where those great areas are too. Yeah. I, sometimes I don't know, you know, I, I think we, I think we all know, you know, everyone says this. I mean, anyone who's ever worked in the ER, anyone who knows anything about healthcare says way too many patients end up in the emergency room. Like everyone says this, you know, and then studies, I think back this up. Some people say, oh, 70% of the ER visits are unnecessary. I think that's probably true, if not more. But then there's lots of other scenarios where it's easy to say, too many people are in the ER, but like, what are you capable of doing outside of the ER? Like, what is an acceptable, safe scope of practice outside of an emergency room? And each individual doctor has to make that determination. But I think pushing those boundaries, even when you're done with training and residency, is super important. It's, it's the right thing for the patient. It makes you better over time, but it does put you in scary positions and situations. And, you know, there's a time and place where you have to say, you know what, that's, you know, that, that, that needs to go to the emergency room. But I think a lot of times it's just, it's easier sometimes to kind of push the patient in that direction and move on. But when you're in the type of model that I'm in, I really try to push my boundaries there and take care of people, learn new things that I, that I didn't know even at the end of residency. What is one dream that you would like to see happen in medicine in your lifetime? Oh man, so many. I think my biggest one is for the American public. This is a huge one. But I can do dreams here, right? I think it's for the American public to rediscover or uh, relearn like the huge value in, in primary care that that we 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 make so many different parts of our healthcare system, you know, sexy and romantic and 
specialization and all these advanced technologies and all this stuff. And some of it's cool, but I, I don't think our healthcare system is ever going to get better uh, unless people start understanding that value in primary care and particularly a personal relationship and how much good that can do both for the person and their health financially. But I think most people don't, you know, I think that's kind of like a lost, you know, we're multiple generations removed from people having that perception of like my doctor and that relationship. And I think that's true of the public. I think that's true of policymakers. So the American healthcare system is messed up in lots of ways. But for me, like that's that's kind of the goal of the DPC movement is to restore that. And that's going to take a long time. That's that's a twenty or thirty year dream. It'll probably happen after I'm retired. But I think we have a good start on it. It definitely sounds like it in the past few years. And we will add notes to DPC Alliance and some of the other programs and things that you've mentioned so far. Is there any place for the audience to reach you directly? Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm probably most active on Twitter, at NewCare, at NEUCare. It's a a compilation of different weird stuff I say on there, but I do talk about healthcare sometimes. (laughs) Well, Dr. Ryan Newoffel, thank you so much for coming on the show today. All right. Thanks, Chase. 